Hello, friends. This episode is for my small business owners, my medium-sized business owners, my people with a side hustle, my people who are dreaming of having any of those things. I had put a post on Instagram and said, like, hey, guys, do you have any questions about business that I can answer? And I just got so many questions, which I answered on Instagram, but then also thought, hey, maybe I'll make a podcast about this because I know I have entrepreneurs in my community and all of these questions are fantastic and kind of touching in a bunch of different industries. So I thought that this might be helpful. So if you like this episode, I hope that you will take a screenshot and let me know what you thought and let me know if you have other business questions or if you want more of this kind of content. But here we go in no particular order. I'm just going to answer a bunch of business questions. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. Okay, the first question, how do I know when it's time to move away from Etsy and onto my own website? So I've never sold on Etsy. Uh, so the opinion I'm going to give you right now is based on an outsider's perspective. But I feel like I always want to control as much of the margin as I possibly can. So let me explain this kind of at a higher level, just in case this isn't something you're familiar with. Because when I first started in business, I was not familiar with this. When I first started, I focused almost entirely on revenue. I was like, how much money am I bringing in? How much did I sell? How many clients do I have? How much customers? That's what I focused on. And I would obsess over that number and then get to the end of the year and be like, where did it go? I don't know if you guys ever feel like that where you're like, man, I'm making $100,000. Like, how come I don't have anything to show for it? You don't have anything to show for it because you're focusing on the wrong thing. When you focus on revenue, you're missing the bigger picture. So what actually matters most is profit margin. How much money do you actually make? It's the difference between net and gross. Basically, if I own an Etsy shop and I'm selling t-shirts and I sell my t-shirt for $20, I'm not making $20 because I need to account for all of the fees that went into making that shirt, right? So the cost of the material, the cost to print it, the time that myself or my employee spent to create that thing. Maybe you had advertising dollars. The packaging, like all of it has to be fully baked into the price of the thing that you're selling, right? So let's say that you sell that shirt for $20 and you know that it costs you fully baked, like everything all in, it costs you 10 bucks. So you're like, well, my margin, my profit margin there is $10. When you're on a store like Etsy, 
they're taking an additional percentage. I don't know what it is for someone like that, but if you're on Etsy or Jane.com, it's a great opportunity to be in a marketplace where people can find you, but you're going to pay a percentage for that finder's fee, essentially, right? So that's all well and good and worth it because you have the search engine of an Etsy behind that can help send people into your store. But if you are advertising your product anywhere else on the internet, you should 1 million percent be driving them to your own website. Because when you drive them to your own website, you control more of that margin, right? Now, certainly there are taxes if you use Shopify, like there's all sorts of things that go into it. But I always want the ability to control as much of my margin as possible. And so that would look like me driving them into my own site versus driving them into my Etsy store. One more quick thought here is that if, uh, this is my understanding, so if this is wrong, then disregard. But my understanding is that if you are getting your customers from a marketplace like one like Jane or Etsy, that you don't have direct access to your customers. I think, if this is wrong, please ignore me. But if someone comes into your website and they shop through your website, you have their email address. An email address is everything when it comes to digital commerce. So you have the ability to tell them about new product offerings and sales. You have the ability to stay in touch with them. It's really, really powerful. So that would be another reason why I would create my own website so I could drive new business, anything from social media into that space. The next question is, how do you decide what to price something? I have an Etsy shop. All right. Shout out to all the uh, e-com people up in here. Um, I have an Etsy shop and I struggle with pricing. Uh, so you want to look at what the rest of the market has to offer. If you were selling something super unique, then you kind of get to make up your own pricing. But if you're selling something that also exists on Etsy, you want to look at what the rest of the market, meaning what do the other sellers on Etsy have for their pricing, right? So Maybe these people charge 15 and these people charge 10 and you want to meet somewhere in the middle. Or maybe you're like, no, I am building a brand that is going to be a little bit more luxurious. We use a better product. We have the, the ingredients inside of this that are worth more. And so I'm going to charge more, which is totally great. You just want to make sure that when you're marketing your product, you are explaining why it has more value and therefore why it costs a bit more. Did you wait until you were making a profit to hire staff or did you hire staff before as an added expense? So I actually answered a similar question like this in the Instagram story, but I'll say it here as well. I really believe that you shouldn't add any employees until adding that employee can increase your revenue. So you are at a place where you're like, okay, if I bring on this extra person, that will allow me to elevate to a higher level and focus on big picture stuff, or that will allow us to bring in more customers, or that will allow us to serve more clients. But you have to be able to tie that higher to bringing money into the company because it's going to be an expense and it's going to cost you money. And it's so stressful as a business owner to be hiring people and and feel like it's completely on your shoulders to make sure you have enough revenue to cover those costs. 
That being said, it's a completely different ballgame if you have investment money, if you've got venture capital, if you're getting a big loan and you know that in order for you to do what you want to do, you've got to be able to hire these people. That's a different ballgame. I assume in this instance, you're talking about a small business. And my advice to you would be to make sure that hiring that person is going to increase the money that your business brings in. Any book recommendations about business? Oh my gosh, yes. If you go to my website, MsRachelHollis.com, and you typed in business books, I give you my full list of my favorite books. But uh, some of my favorites, I love Shoe Dog, which is the story of Phil Knight building Nike. Nike's one of my favorite brands, and I just thought that story was so inspiring. I love High Performance Habits by Brendan Burchard. I think it's a really smart way to kind of look at your day, week, month, and figure out how to plan what you want to do next. I love The One Thing by Gary Keller, which is about getting laser focused on what's going to matter most in your business. I love Essentialism by Greg McEwen. I mean, I have all the recommendations. So go check that out on the website. Tips on how to stay motivated when the payoff isn't there yet. Well, first of all, Katie, last week's episode was all about how to get motivated. So I would recommend you go back and listen to that if you want some motivation tips. But the biggest advice I would give you here is kind of the last piece of advice I gave on that episode, which is if you want to stay motivated when you haven't started to see those results yet, you've got to be focused on the future. You've got to visualize the future and where you want to go, and you have to keep that mindset every single day. You have to see it so clearly in your mind. You have to see it playing like a movie. Like, what's it going to feel like when this finally happens? Where am I going to get to go to dinner to celebrate? Like, what is, like what's that moment going to be? You have to see it so clearly because that's the thing that you're going to cling to when it feels really, really hard. So this question is, how do you find the right employees that care as much as you do and want success? Surface level answer is that you have to know your core values and you have to know the core values of your business and you look for people that share those same core values. That's the like buttoned up answer of when you're interviewing people, when you're talking to people, when it's you're just you're looking at them through the lens of your core values because you want to be aligned. But the deeper level, just like straight entrepreneur answer for you on this one is, I don't know if they'll ever care as much as you do. And it took me a really long time to learn that. They will care deeply about the parts of the business they're passionate about, building the dream, maybe serving people, but nobody is ever going to care as much as you do. And you do them a huge disservice and yourself a disservice if you expect them to care as much as you do. This is your baby. This is your dream. And I don't think that the goal is to find a group of people who are as focused on your dream as you are. I think the goal is how do you find good people with good heart who share your same intentionality and your same values? And that's an incredible place to build something magical. Okay, so this one says, I've made my first hire, but my perfectionism makes it hard for me to delegate. Best advice. Ooh, that is so real, and this affects so many people. Well, uh, I'm going to tough love you right now. Do you want your business to grow or not? Delegation is the difference between you staying just right where you are 
and you actually being able to scale your company. And I feel like I can only see a very small picture, but I feel like the picture I can see looks like you are a mama. So you're a working mom, unless you just have two little girls in your profile picture. But it looks like you're a working mom to me. And if you're an entrepreneur as well, that means that you've got big goals for yourself. And your ability to delegate is how you're going to have the energy that you need to do the job you want to do. It's how you're going to be able to grow the way you want to grow. It's how you're going to be able to, you know, not have to work 16-hour days. It's essential that you figure this out. And I would also say, I think of delegating in your business the same way that I think of what it looks like to be in a marriage with someone and raising kids together. Like I always used to think this about Dave. And even though we're not together, I still think of him in this way as a co-parent is he parents very differently than I do. And just because he doesn't parent like I do doesn't mean that his way is wrong. So for your employee, there are going to be ways that they approach it that is not how you would approach it. And you are going to have parts of the business that you're like, you know what, this thing right here, it has to be done this way because it really matters to me. But the rest of the stuff, you got to let go. You cannot expect everybody to meet all of your vision and all of your ideals and, you know, do it exactly the way that you would. Or you can, but you're going to make people miserable. You're going to make yourself miserable and you're never going to be able to elevate from where you are. So I think that you learn to delegate not because it's a nice idea, but because it's absolutely necessary for the thing that you want to build. That's it. You need to be more graceful with the people on your team and allow them to make mistakes. And I think that what it looks like as a leader is you allow people to sort of stumble and try things, but you'd never let them stumble or try things in an area that like would really hurt the business or would really hurt a customer relationship. But like, yeah, let them write the email. Let them try that thing. Let them do this bit because you're only going to be able to get better if you try. And I don't think it's ever going to go the way that you want it to if it has to be exactly like you see it in your head. When we control every single piece of every single variable in the business, we don't leave room for any magic. We don't leave room for any anything special that that teammate might bring to the table. So be graceful. I know it's hard when you have a certain vision of how you want it to be done, but I think in the long run, it's it's an essential piece of how you grow. How do you inspire a business partner when there seems to be no motivation in them? You don't. You don't. Straight up, all the love in my heart. You don't. If you are in partnership in business with someone who is not motivated, you there you, you can't That is not your job to motivate another human being. It's not your job to get them inspired or make it like it's... And maybe there's plenty of partnerships where maybe that person serves a really unique purpose and they don't need to be that for you. Like maybe, I don't know, I'm making this up, but like maybe they're a a software designer and they need to like be in there and they're coding and whatever. And they're not really motivated to like go out and find customers or build a marketing plan or whatever, because that's not their specialty. Their job here is to code this software, right? If that's the case, great. But if this partnership, if this partner is meant to be someone who's meeting you at your level, who's doing the things that you wish 
they, you know, like, oh, why aren't they doing this as hard as I am? The example I think of is I just watched Julie and Julia. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but in it, Julia Childs is working with two other women to write this very famous cookbook. And one of them is just not putting in the effort and not doing the work. And they finally just have to say, like, you're not going to share in equal partnerships. You're not going to get the same percentage. You're not going to be represented in the same way because you're not doing what we're doing. So yeah, I can't imagine like having a business partner and then also thinking that I need to motivate them as well. That like tough love, but that sounds like you are setting yourself up for failure. It sounds like you are how it's only going to work if like what I think of is um, in the Bible, there's a reference to being in relationship and it says that two oxen can't be unevenly yoked. Like the yoke is the thing that goes around oxen's neck as they sort of pull the plow through the fields. And if one ox is really big and one is really small, then they would be unevenly yoked. The yoke wouldn't be able to sit evenly on their backs. And I think even though that's in reference to relationship, it looks that way in a business partnership as well. It's never going to be sustainable if one of you is just crushing it and the other one is not. That's just going to lead to bitterness and resentment. So would love to start my own online clothing boutique. Have no idea where to start. Advice? Question mark. Yeah, go to YouTube. Uh, like this is my answer for so many things. I mean, people in here are like, how do I build a marketing plan? How do I do this? How do I do that? What do I need to start a business? Y'all go to YouTube. YouTube is like just the greatest search engine ever. All the resources you want are there. Cheyenne, I guarantee that right now there's like 50,000 people who have made videos about how to start an online clothing boutique. And you're going to find all sorts of perspectives and not all of them are going to be for you, but some of them are, and they're going to be great. And you're going to find people that you admire. Follow those people, follow them on YouTube, follow them on Instagram, start to surround yourself with digital representation of the kind of business you want to have. So every single day, instead of, you know, seeing the Kardashians in your feed, you're seeing like these cool entrepreneurial, like badass people. So you're getting wisdom and ideas all the time about how to do this thing that you want to do. Okay. Oh, here's a good one. I feel like it's important real quick. <laughs> so that sound you hear, my alarm going off, is I talk to y'all a lot about visualization. And so I have an alarm set in my phone throughout the day to remind me to take a quick minute and set my intention, remind myself where I'm going, look to the future. That's a really, that wasn't a question that someone had, but I just heard it going off and thought it's a good little tip for you guys is, I don't know how it works on other phones, but on iPhone, if you go into your alarm setting, if you set an alarm, look at all the options to set an alarm and one of them says a label. And right now it just says alarm, but you can change that alarm to say anything. So in the morning, I will write myself motivational thoughts or intentions that I want to bring myself back to. And then I will set alarms to go off throughout the day. Like for instance, I have one that'll go off at 619 because that's right in the midst of chaos and, you know, mom life and all of that, that goes off whenever my kids are with me. And it says, how would the best version of you show up right now? Because I want to remind myself of who I want to be and how I want to show up in this world. So just a little tip. My next question is, what is your number one mindset shift 
to play big in my business. Chloe, I can tell you that for me, what shifted everything was who I was hanging out with, straight up. The level of entrepreneur that you have in your life is equal to what kind of mindset you have and how, quote unquote, big you play. And for the longest time, I didn't have access to entrepreneurs in my life that I could just like be friends with like I have today. And I found that wisdom and that inspiration in books and podcasts, on YouTube videos, like constantly, constantly, constantly wanted to absorb information from people who are more successful than I was. And later that looked like me being able to connect with entrepreneurs who were at higher levels than me. I didn't even know it was possible to make like millions of dollars in a business and still, until I started to hang out with entrepreneurs who were like, oh yeah, I did, you know, 25 million last year. And I was like, what, what, what? Like, I didn't even know a human could do that. I didn't grow up with money or access or people in my life who had built anything. And so I didn't know that that was possible. And then when someone talks about it, it normalizes what you believe is, is available to you. So that, like, get involved, masterminds, you know, programs, are there Facebook groups? Like, what are the different things that you can get involved in where you can just absorb, like, osmosis information from people who are more successful than you are? The next question is, how do I grow my podcast? Oh, well, here we are. So my advice for anybody who has a podcast and wants to grow it is, Number one, consistency is everything. That was one of the first pieces that I learned when I started this back in beginning of 2017 was you got to show up at the same time on the same day every single week. This is not like randomness where you're like, oh, I'm going to, I'll do one here. And then the next week I'll release three and then you won't hear from me for six weeks. No. Um, you guys have heard me talk a lot about batching my work. I batch my podcast. So I am, this is the third piece that I've recorded today for y'all so that I have weeks of content ready to go. And that means that I can stay on the consistent schedule. So that's a really important piece. It seems kind of like tactical and simple, but show up same time, same day, every single week. Make sure that you're utilizing whatever social media presence you have to let people know about what's available. Whenever possible, you want to get on other people's podcasts. When you're more junior in the podcast space, I would reach out to other people who are on your level, as many as you can possibly fit in and, and do a podcast swap. I think a really easy way, time-efficient way to do this is to get on with someone that you admire. You both record the episode or like one of you records the episode and then you both run it. So you don't have to record two separate things. So now you both have content, which is awesome. And then each other's audience is getting to learn about you and sort of see what you're, what you're all about. So those would be some tips. Consistency is key. Uh, work with other podcasters and make sure that you're promoting across all of your social. Uh, the last question here is advice on hiring friends. So I've done this bad ways. and <laughs> I've done this good ways. One of my best friends on the planet is my creative director. And it works really well for us. But I think it works really well for us after like many years of figuring it out. How I've done this in a bad way before is hiring friends 
because I needed a like I needed help or I needed a role filled. And the friend wasn't actually qualified for the job, but I just trusted them. And I had a fear of like, I don't know how to hire an employee. I don't know how to do that. So I just like was like, oh, come on, you're a warm body and I can trust you to show up. And so I would hire friends. And that can be like a beautiful thing where it gets really hard is when when and if the business starts to grow and scale, then you find you have friends who are no longer qualified for the business you have now. Like they were an incredible resource for that original team, that original, you know, coming out of the gate. But now that you're bigger, they don't make sense. And they are loyal and they've worked really hard. And it's so awful to have to let go of a friend. And so I think you have to be really careful about how you pursue that, if at all possible. If you have a job opening, I think you should pursue it in a smart way. I think you should put together a job listing, like what are the qualifications and what do I want this person to be? And also, if you've never done that before, even still today, I'll go on LinkedIn and kind of look at how other people describe what they do and use that to format a little bit of this and a little bit of that and kind of use it to figure out what it is I want to say about a job description. But I think you go through those channels to handle it in the right way. That being said, in my work, I need a creative director and I have needed a creative director for five years. And so happened to have a friend who did that and is one of the most brilliant creative minds I know. And we work together really well. So Sammy being here makes a ton of sense. But also there have been times where we've been frustrated with each other. I mean, it's been many, many years. So there's definitely been times where we've been frustrated. And then that does affect, can affect the friendship in those seasons. It hasn't happened in a really long time because I think honestly, we've learned how to communicate and know each other's kind of ticks. But for what that's worth, I think if you're hiring for a role and you happen to have a friend that's just like so perfect at it, then yeah, do it. Because I use, as I'm saying this now, I'm like, okay, well, I actually work with all my best friends because Beans collaborates with me all the time. She speaks on every stage ever, helps me come up with curriculum. And then Rosie is my stylist for a lot of things. But I guess my friends are really professional and really good at what they do. So the difference, there's a difference between hiring someone just because you need a body to fill a role and you, or you happen to have a friend that is exceptional at the thing that you need. All right. Those are the questions that I saw on Instagram today. If you have more questions, always want to make sure you know about the podcast hotline where you can call in and ask me any old thing that you're wondering. Oh, see? Oh, I knew it's that same alarm. I really have to do my meditation because I haven't done it yet. But if there's anything that I ever talk about here on the podcast that you want me to take a deeper dive or something you didn't understand or maybe a brand new question about any old thing at all, I will put the number for the podcast hotline in the show notes so you can give me a call and uh, I can answer your question here on the show. I hope you found this helpful. If you are a hustler, if you've got that side business, if you are a small business owner, any kind of entrepreneur, and you thought this was a helpful episode, please uh, take a screenshot and put it on social media and tell your other entrepreneur friends that it's here. I always want to keep creating great free content for y'all and um, just the way that you can 
help out is to let people know that it's here. So thank you for listening. I love you guys. I'm rooting for you. And I'm hoping that this is the year that your business explodes into the kind of success that you have been dreaming of. The Rachel Hollis podcast is hosted by me, Rachel Hollis. Our show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with additional production support by Sterling Coates. Our executive producer is Cameron Berkman. The Rachel Hollis podcast is a 3% chance production. Hey, y'all. My name is Darren, and I'm a visual designer at the Hollis Co. And I also write our monthly cultural newsletter for our company called Sway. Sway newsletter is all about subtle movements that adapt change. We all have the ability to change things for the better. All this month, I'm going to be introducing you to black artists, works, and cultural moments to bring a little more celebration to your Black History Month. What I'm about to show y'all now are things that have caught my eye that need to be recognized and supported. Welcome back to Sway Digital. It is virtually impossible to have a discussion on the importance of Black culture and the contributions of Black people without it circling back around to Black music. From its origins in Africa to wherever it has been scattered amongst the diaspora, music is an important aspect of Black life. There is no doubt because it was such an integral component of African life. Black music dates back to the early days of slavery, but of course goes further back than that. Music was a way of expressing their feelings through hope, pain and suffering, and celebration, and still is today. It is a way to share our life story. During early slavery times, it was forbidden for African Americans to sing or chant or play drums. Slave owners or masters believed it was a way for them to communicate on escaping. It is likewise impossible to separate black music from the American music experience. The highly rhythmic, syncopated elements of black music have been woven into every style we identify as American music. Black people are the originators of so many popular music styles, spirituals, blues, R&B, ragtime, jazz, to soul, funk, hip-hop, punk, and yes, even electronic dance music. So, a quick rundown of African-American music from the earliest days of America through the 1960s. Blacks, who were brought to the New World as early as the 15th century, prior to the official beginnings of the transatlantic slave trade in 1619, came with their instruments and music from Africa. They came with zithers, xylophones, banjos, and of course drums. The music was reflective of traditional African melodies, which consisted of a lot of call and response type songs. This call and response form, where the group echoes the leader, is a strong component of the music and can still be heard in many black genres even today. During slavery, this form became the basis of the field haulers and work songs. On plantations that allowed slaves time off on Sundays, this style of song extended into their worship. The result was the birth of the spiritual, which over the course of the next hundred years will morph into the gospel music we enjoy today. Reflective of how African music is central to the human experience, African American music likewise reflected the joys, spirituality, and sufferings that form their lives. Emancipation pushed black people into a society that met them with hostility. This new form of suffering gave birth to the blues, which traveled with them from the rural south into cities of the north. Blues artists Ma Rainey and W.C. Handy were some of the pioneers of this genre, 
Ragtime, as championed by the likes of Scott Joplin and Jelly Roll Morgan, on the other hand, was post-slavery instrumental music that grew out of African syncopated styles as applied to march forms inspired by the Civil War marching bands. This syncopated style was known as ragging or jazzing the melody. Jazz was born as the concept was moved from the primarily dancehall piano music of ragtime to the street bands of New Orleans. Recounting just the innovators from Buddy Bolden to John Coltrane are too great to even attempt. As black people migrated and concentrated in northern cities, new genres were developed reflecting the urban lifestyle, often built upon the blues form, the barbershop quartet, jump blues, boogie woogie, rhythm and blues, and even rock and roll. Soul music became synonymous with black music with doo-wop dominating in the 1950s and R&B in the 1960s. Motown is legendary as well as the Memphis and Philadelphia sounds. Then in the 70s, with the new advancements in musical instrument technology, black music developed to encompass the new sounds. During the 70s, black people were branching out in so many different directions in music, creating so many great platforms and providing huge contributions. In rock and roll, Ike Turner came out with his release, Rocket 88, which pretty much defined the early stages of rock. This led to so many great artists that we love, like Prince, Jimi Hendrix, George Clinton, and many more. In punk rock, Bad Brains pushed boundaries on stereotypes. They were the Rastafarians of punk in the 1970s. Punk defied the cultural stereotypes, creating a musical revolution. In disco, it was a mixture of Black, Latino, Italian, and LGBTQ communities contributing to the sound. Disco was birthed by so many great artists, like Donna Summer, Earth, Wind & Fire, and many more. This grew in later years to form house music that birthed out other creative genres like drum and bass, techno, EDM, and more. In 1973, DJ Cool created an idea with his turntables to beat juggle some tracks that only show the musical breakbeats and songs. This technique coined the birth of hip-hop. It became an underground culture movement in the Bronx that spread like wildfire. Ending the golden era of the 70s came more innovators like Sugar Hill Gang and their infamous track, Rapper's Delight, becoming the first rap single to become a top 40 hit. As the genre evolved over the years, hip-hop became this way for artists to communicate their struggles and dreams through music. It was their stories to tell and share through the black community. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five dropped a record called Message that talked about government corruption. It created a platform for black people who felt overlooked by politics of the day. Sounds very familiar to slavery times as well as the times of today. These weren't just songs written by black people. It is their story that has been told over and over throughout generations. Now, I can go on and on about music and be here for ages, but I'm going to try to sum it up. Black people's contributions to music continues to grow and evolve into several genres that have shaped the world as we know it now. Legends like the King of Pop, Michael Jackson, to the godfather of house, Frankie Knuckles, not forgetting artists that changed hip-hop forever, like Jay Dilla and Run DMC, to rock and roll's heavenly voice artist, Jackie Wilson. These pioneers have led a great example of black music in America. For black artists, music continues to be a vehicle of expression. Throughout the years of hardship from early slavery days to modern times, black people prevailed by being the creative innovators that we are, no matter how much oppression we've had to face. I'm Darren, and this is Sway Digital.